Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Jim, Cliff, good to see you guys. How are you doing? Doing really well. I'm slightly sunburned because I'm in Johannesburg, but that's that's all good. So yeah, it's good to be here. Nice to meet both of you in a video call and see you online. Yeah, I'm doing great. A little, little tired, a week of on-site client work, but that's always uh, just really energizing, but it leads to some long days away from home. But uh, looking forward to the holidays and spending a few weeks uh, with friends and family. Awesome. I think this is the biggest triangle when it comes to geographical locations that we've ever made so far. The Netherlands, Missouri, and now Johannesburg and South Africa. So it's quite a big of a, the distance is pretty big. Cliff, you've been working with Spotify. How did you deal with the, the distance in that sense? Like, did you have remote teams there as well? Yeah. So for context, I, I was I joined the company about 2013 or so, and I left four and a half, nearly five years later. Uh, I've been gone from the company from about four years, so I can talk to sort of the earlier stages of the company, but the sort of more recent ones, uh, I obviously know a bunch of folks who've been there and kind of have a sense of things, but uh, it definitely changed. So uh, in the recent years, they were allowing a much more remote and kind of set up for that. But when I was there, part of the challenge was that even though officially the company didn't support a kind of remote working policy, reality was that you were quite often dealing with a team of folks who were as distributed as we were or as we currently are. Uh, and so you've got folks in Stockholm, people in Boston, someone in San Francisco, uh, and maybe somebody you know somewhere else on the marketing team or something else. And so folks are traveling around and you have to deal with that. So um, I, I think one of the biggest things that I found helpful was investing in good, clear written communication. Uh, because without that, you end up having to jump on a call and talk face-to-face the whole time. And when your overlap is an hour or two of the day, uh, either somebody's working long hours or you're trying to cram all your meetings into 45-minute slots, uh, and that doesn't work so well. So writing stuff down in a way that you can say, hey, here's my thinking, uh, maybe we can chat on Slack a little bit more afterwards, but um, really getting to a point where you can clearly articulate what what you're trying to get across in as few words as possible. How would you define clear communication in that sense? Because I can imagine that it's really easy to chug in a whole lot of details when typing stuff down. Yeah, one of my favorite things, and it's funny because I've actually seen this uh, used in a couple of different ways at other organizations. Um, I read this book called Smart Brevity earlier this year, and it it had a concept in there that was very similar that we used. Um, The idea is the TLDR, uh, for those of you not from the internet, uh, too long didn't read is what it means. Um, so the way that we used it inside Spotify was this kind of, here's the bullet point summary. You know, if you read only one line, read this one uh, is kind of the idea. Uh, and so what you would do is essentially write your two page, you know, monologue or uh, hopefully a little bit shorter than that, but then take all of that and try to rewrite it in a single sentence so that folks who need to get it go, okay, this one I need to read, or maybe this one I don't need to read and skip across. So I think a lot of it is putting on that hat of like, what do other people need to get from this? Uh, or why would they need to read it is, is a good way to start thinking about it. Looking ahead at the next few years, what what would you say, what as your advice to people who are maybe wondering 
what remote work means for them. Maybe they think they're they're great at it. Maybe their company is, you know, there's this push-pull between leadership and, and workers who seem to think they, or who think they thrive at home, which I, I put myself in. Like, how do you see the industry going? What gets easier? What gets harder over the next few years around this? Yeah, I, I think what I've seen a lot of companies doing is somewhere sort of a little bit in the middle. And in many cases, I think if you don't do it well, or you don't fully invest in either of those two strategies, you end up kind of getting the worst of both worlds or like kind of a mediocre version of each. Um, so simple example is a lot of companies, you know, bring everyone together in a physical space, but then you're in a giant open plan office and everybody's on headphones talking to somebody on another continent what is the point in being in that space? You know, it's kind of like there's a lot of effort and energy that goes into that to perhaps not reap the benefit. And I think what's useful is for a lot of folks to kind of spend a bit more time. And I, I think there's been a lot of good discourse in this space already. What is the reason why we might choose one or the other? And if we choose that, what what would be the benefits that we want to try to lean into? You know, we need to learn certain skills. If we want to be in an office, we want to need to learn maybe a totally different set of skills if we want to work remotely. but if we don't actually invest in doing that, we tend not to see the benefits. It's it's not as simple as just making a decision. Um, I'm curious what, what you've experienced in, in this sort of a sense. Well, like, I am one of the people who think that they do really, really well remote. Um, but when I go on site with my clients or when I'm when I'm teaching or running workshops, I, I those days really are impactful to me. So I think that, speaking just for myself, most people, you know, most people like me need a mixture of both, but it's more about what's that ratio. And when we are coming together, are we maximizing mm-hmm. the use of it? But I think a topic that came up just yesterday that I'd love to get your thoughts on, whether it's from your past or current, is um, I see people living in teams or apps like teams a lot more often. And I, I'm looking at chats between developers or leaders in their teams. And I see just really important things flying by and they get lost. They're, they're churning, right? Like in the old IRC chat days, it's, it's in the history, it's gone. You can't even look at it. And I'm like, some of that stuff needs to be captured, whether it's because next year we're going to fight a bug in this area and next year we're going to pay off tech debt or we're going to do some sort of expedition in that part of the product or the code. And you're going to wish that you could immediately put Mm. your hands on that. And I think that's one of the things I'm seeing is to ask developers or, or anybody really to leave one tool and go into another tool to capture that stuff requires some discipline and some forethought that, not everyone has just by default. Mm. I think there's a lot of things in in a number of different ways you could say about that. First, first one I would say is that it, it highlights often the challenge that I think a lot of companies face. Almost every company I've worked with is doing too many things, uh, and when you're you know sort of focused on this set of things over here, but you're also having to deal with the fire hose of other ideas and new new topics and, you know, onboarding some new teammate, uh, some kind of activity that's happening, um, that becomes challenging. And I, I don't think that the digital tools make it any easier to do that. Um, I, I guess what I would say in that sense is a lot of kind of filtering and structuring data and information. The, the lens that I would often look through is is what the team topologies guys call cognitive load. Uh, from an individual perspective, I don't need to know everything every second of every day. 
is there a space, a place, or a time that I can get together and say, okay, now we'll talk about this is the new change of priorities, or this is when we will retrospect and review and plan for the next quarter, or you know, this is when we will actually take on new requests and discuss other ideas. Because I think the cost of that context switching is often the part that's actually the challenge. And even if you find a good place to put it in some kind of terms of a tool or whatever, you also have to intentionally make time to sit down and process that information, think about it, understand what does it mean to me in my context? How does it influence the things I was planning or am doing? Uh, and then figure out, you know, what, what would that influence uh, over the longer term and perhaps give some input back to the other folk. Um, and I, I think that you find that fire hose, you know, when you've got 75 channels all pinging you in different tools, in different platforms, you've got, you know, your email, your Jira, your Teams, your whatever else, plus somebody showing up at your desk, plus WhatsApp, you know, things are going to get lost in that side of, kind of a sense. And so, you know, in addition to the structuring, I think there's also a conversation to be had about, you know, which topics happen where and when, and, you know, is it free for all on all channels at all time? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's maybe fine when you're three people, uh, but as you get bigger, that becomes a huge, huge challenge, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've seen that way too, too often myself as well in the organizations that we work in that you got 3,000 different WhatsApp channels for people that want to socialize and you got one group of three developers that want to do uh, to talk about one specific subject and then you got another with three other developers and then you got slack and then you got teams and discord and you before you know you'll get completely swamped in different kind of tools and how do you maintain this structure and how do you make make sure that wherever stuff is being uh, listed down that this is one single place that you do not get swamped in all this stuff and all these different tools and pages and channels and I don't know what not before your cognitive load gets too high. Cliff, before you before you weigh in on that, one of the things that came up in a recent episode around EBM was separating the signal from the noise. And I, I think that's kind of what we're talking about, which is um, I don't ever want to squash team building or camaraderie or that fun banter that makes work fun, but it's what, like, what I'm hearing you say, Cliff, that I think is great is what is the right channel for what type of content and how do I maintain all my multiple channels and when do I do that? And what I would love to get your thoughts on is my, I have an opinion that one of the missing skills from many people is facilitation. So think about when you come together as a group and maybe you're in that defined time that you're going to talk about that technical issue or you're in a defined meeting where you're like, hey, we're going to spend this hour to talk about this new market opportunity. A lot of people will say that was a great chat and then they leave, but nothing's different. And they're lacking kind of that arc of facilitation of coming in, coming together, figuring what we're going to talk about and leaving with something, whatever it is we're leaving with. Maybe we're just leaving with having a good chat for an hour, but most of the time, in reflection, people are like, yeah, that was great. We've had a lot of talks about that, but we're still talking about it three months later. It, do you agree with that? Like facilitation is in the skills around it are important for people to develop? I, I think so. And I, I think the more people that have those sort of skills, the more, because part of facilitation is not just awareness of the group, but it also teaches you to some extent self-awareness and sort of, what I see often in, a, in the context of a team is this this pattern that maybe you've noticed is, you know, a team is kind of converging on a set of ideas and they're just about to make a decision. 
and then somebody goes and says, you know, hey, uh, actually, here's a new idea or another option or what about that thing? Um, and I, I think part of the challenge is basically figuring out how to handle those sort of things effectively so that you don't have this constant kind of reopening and, and kind of pulling everything kind of out into, into the open again uh, every single time. So I think the more people who learn about facilitation, the better it becomes because you know, then you get an opportunity to actually learn some of the techniques and like, does the team need more ideas right now or less is a simple question that I often teach in a facilitation context. And if the answer is less, me throwing another idea is not going to help the situation. Um, and I think it's helpful to to kind of jump through that and, and figure out how to do it better. How did you see this play down with uh, Spotify? Um, I was actually quite pleasantly surprised by the amount of facilitation experience that a number of folks had and, and the frequency with which, you know, you could kind of have somebody jump in and say, you know, hey, this is, uh, you know, we're running a retrospective or different kind of conversation. And folks who are not just from the sort of traditional facilitation roles, uh, either a dedicated facilitator or something like a scrum master or a coach or whatever, uh, folks in all variety of roles from, you know, engineers to engineering managers, designers, product leads, and so on, uh, could jump in and say, cool, I'm, I will take on the facilitative stance. And my job is to help shepherd us towards an outcome that is hopefully something that we sort of at least have an idea of where we're going in advance. Um, and I, I think this is one of the things that I, I find intriguing with other companies that I've worked at since then is that very often what happens is the in the early days of a company, everyone is kind of clear on the goal of what we're trying to achieve, uh, whether that's with the product or with the project we're working on or something like that, even in the context of a single meeting. But as the company grows, it's often the case that either people have just joined and they don't have the context, or maybe it wasn't so clearly defined in the beginning. It's drifted in ways that we haven't yet quite nailed down. Uh, and so you end up in a lot of conversations where it's like, what are we actually trying to do here? Like, what is the what is the purpose of this activity, whether it's a meeting or a product development planning session or whatever? And I think often uh, when you have a group of people that are bound together by some kind of common purpose, that actually makes it a lot easier. You get a lot of stuff kind of for free, if you will, even if you don't define the interactions around every single meeting or every conversation, every channel. If we know that our job is to solve a shared problem, we're collaborating towards that goal. Whereas in a lot of organizations, we're managed as a set of individuals, each with a small sort of sliver of what we're doing. Um, and I think a lot of these challenges kind of come from that. Um, and yeah, why would we have a meeting to achieve in a certain agenda if we aren't actually in agreement that there's something we want to do together? Um, that to me is, is perhaps a challenge um, that I think is worth highlighting. Do you think, and this is a question to both of you, do you think we've lost our pragmatism? Who's the we in this question? In, in general, like in the, the industry itself, do you think we're over-focusing on these silver bullets, whether that's Scrum or anything else or the Spotify model, which doesn't exist, uh, but it fits this context? Uh, but do you feel that we're focusing too much on a specific tool or framework to solve our issues rather than just yes. making sure that we actually fix it? Um, short answer, yes. I, I think we, we spend way too much time talking about how to install or implement some framework thinking that it's going to be a panacea to solve all of our problems when, and we, as, as a, as an industry, and this is not just in the agile industry, I'm just talking the world of modern work. It is easier than ever to not build interpersonal skills, to not know how to talk to people, to not deal with conflict, to not see stuff. And 
in the massive war for our eyeballs, being distracted is worse than ever. And so I would say yes to your question. Cliff, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I was thinking that like, I've seen this pattern repeat itself so many times, whether it's, you know, big data, currently we're doing this with AI. Uh, historically, we did this with Agile. Uh, it becomes about, you know, adopting the tool, the method or whatever, but without really understanding what the hell is the problem we're trying to solve or what is the opportunity we see to be capitalized on. Um, and uh, M Melissa Perry actually had a great post the other day, uh, sort of satirizing this idea is that like so often what's happening right now is people being pushed to plan this new something, something AI that is pushing out kind of things that are clearly defined customer needs and problems we're trying to solve, but because the board or the Exco want some shiny AI thing because it's all the rage right now, um, people are putting in stuff that is just really super weird. Um, and I, I think it's the same pattern, whether you talk about it through you know, any of those lenses. We, we borrowed these things and we apply them without really understanding what, what are they supposed to achieve? How does it help us get towards something that we want that is better? It's this sort of, you know, adopt big data dot 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 and then magic profit comes out the other side but very few people are able to explain to me how you're going to actually do that by the method um was it deming that said by what method i think that was the thing it's like we want to do this by what method and like yeah, yeah. And i don't think people are going to solve this question anyway that's where we have ai for right ar is going to, ai is going to solve our issues not people i just think that you know, this isn't that new, like people focusing on the new shiny thing. Like there's a, a house not far from mine and, you know, just driving by, I can see that, you know, there's not, there's parts of the house without a roof. There's, it doesn't look like they have some of the basic needs in place, like safety and heating and cooling, but there's a $30,000 Harley Davidson out front. So Clearly, you know, the, the shiny new cool thing might get in the way of some very basic foundational needs. And I think like whether it's jamming in AI to a product or installing the new Microsoft Copilot or doing some new initiative is a lot more visible. It's a lot more interesting than shoring up automation or doing RPA type work to eliminate repetitive mundane tasks so that your knowledge workers can focus on more innovative things. And so it's, it's not that it's an, a new problem. It's not even that it's unique to the type of work that we all do probably, but I think we can shine a light and a lens on that difference and try and help people at least see where they're spending their money, their time, their effort, their focus, their cognitive load and helping them think about it. Are you spending your all those things in the right place? I, I would add to that. I, I think very often what's happening, as I mentioned earlier, is this sort of situation where everybody's just so busy with so many things. And I find it intriguing because so much of it is sort of seen as like, well, we just have to ship more stuff uh, as if that's going to somehow magically solve our problems. Um, and the way that I've been talking about this is, is kind of through a, it's it's oversimplified to call it sort of a process, but it's it's roughly sort of a sequence uh, or a sequence of things that I would I would approach. So the first one is we need to create some kind of focus around what we're actually trying to deliver, so that we can cut 
a lot of the noise out to get some breathing room so that we can actually think. Um, and in many organizations, it's it's been sort of the first time that they get the opportunity to actually do that. The, the second step is that when we have a little bit of breathing room and some space to kind of look at what's going on, uh, what's working and what we're doing, we're using that then to find sort of the high leverage opportunities. So, you know, the thing that is going to give uh, the sort of overused phrase, but like the 10x return or the 100x return uh, for the efforts of what we're doing rather than the things that are just kind of table stakes or overhead. Um, and finally, once we can both focus and find our leverage, we need to sustain and kind of keep that momentum going um, by building new habits and default patterns of behaviors um, so that we can actually sustain this and continue working effectively in the organization. Um, and I think so often we're just, you know, so busy for so long that we don't have any opportunity to kind of lift our head and go, is any of this stuff actually working and which ones are working? Um, because maybe we need to do some adaptation and kind of look at it in a different way. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of wild out there. I'm kind of uh, triggered by what you mentioned in the beginning of your, your remark or your comment about uh, pushing, just pushing stuff out. Because slowly, I, we, we just pre-recording, we talked about um, the market slowly moving from agile to more product um, focus. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, in a certain way, because it's more focused again on it doesn't matter how we do it as long as we make sure that there's a product. But it feels to me that there's, again, a shift or a surge in the amount of output rather than outcome. And I'm curious how you observe this. I think that, that that's part of the challenge is that if we're so busy, we don't have time to even review the results of what we're doing. Um, and in many cases, I mean, the reality of a lot of product development work is that there, there is a lag between when we ship something to a customer and when we find out how well it's working. But what fascinates me is how often I ask teams, you know, can you, do, do you know what, or what, what do you understand of was the impact of the last thing that you delivered or what you delivered last quarter? And the number of times that I get a real answer to that question is mostly zero. Um, occasionally I find a team that's like, oh, well, you know, we saw some move in this like availability graph or something like this, or, you know, we know the number of story points of things we delivered or something. I'm like, I mean, those are perhaps indicative of something, but they don't tell you whether or not the thing you built actually moved the needle. And so what I'm trying to do is shift the conversation and say like, okay, there, there is arguably some amount of more we need to deliver, but the assumption is that those more things are useful because if they're not useful, we're ending up filling a warehouse and you know our servers with code that doesn't solve any kind of meaningful customer problem. And then we just have to maintain it and support it ongoing. Um, and I, I think it was Adobe that did a study that said something like 90 to 95% of the features that they built were never used by customers. And, you know, I mean, let's assume that that's an exaggeration, but like, even if it's 50%, that's an enormous opportunity to be able to figure out which ones preferably to not build in the first place. But if you if you can't do it that way, at least to remove from the products is not confusing the hell out of people down the line, wasting all your maintenance and sort of ongoing support capacities and so on. Um, I think there's way more opportunity in the optimization of what we build than in can we actually get it done. But we also have to be able to get it done, which is why I talk about the focus. You know, if we, if we don't put focus on one thing, that thing tends to take 36 months to get done. Whereas if we put focus on it, I have sort of studies from customers that I worked with where we went from 36 months down to six weeks on average cycle time of projects uh, just by putting a focus and some kind of sequence uh, in place to say, you know, that one until it's done and then move on to the next one. Let's not keep pulling people in different directions. But, you know, 
it's hard to make a case for which one should we put number one if we don't even know which ones are working in the past. So um, yeah, becomes a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Mastering agility only works with organizations aligned with our values, and that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about their popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional Scrum trainer for Scrum.org. They have interviewed, trained, and coached hundreds of like-minded people, and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true Scrum Masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. I think one of the one of the things Sandra, that, that comes to mind is it's easy to measure out, output or easier to measure output than outcomes. And those two are both easier to measure than impacts. And if you think about the fact that most of us do what's easy because we're busy and we're distracted and all those other things we're talking about, that's, that's probably part of the problem. I think another part of the problem is we forget or lack the discipline to remember, hey, we released that feature last month. We knew that we needed to let some time pass before we could measure the output of that to see if some of these metrics change, needles moved, et cetera, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And to go back and do that because you're already focused on measuring the next outputs and building the next thing. And I think that any given week or month for product people should be a, kind of a mixture of now, next, and later, and also the previous things and looking at what was and measuring like, yeah, that thing we did last month, that thing we did last quarter. Um, because not everybody works on a product like Spotify where you can go out and get immediate feedback. Some things are quarterly. Some business processes don't run all day, every day in 150 plus countries. And there could be a very real delay in measuring those things. I I agree. And also I think that the part of the challenge is that if you, if you, if you don't even take the time before you start something, and I'm amazed how often people don't do this, just to reason through, like, if we do this, we, we can quantify or we have a set of assumptions. Like, if we had this feature today, what would the impact be? And, you know, how many customers are we talking about? Like, what kind of sales conversion rate change are you talking about? Like, what kind of usage pattern change? Or for an internal thing, you know, how does this affect the speed of teams or the decision-making capability or their autonomy or whatever? And just reason through even just a single chain of like plausible outcome will often get you to a point where you'll go, actually, I don't know how this is going to work. And then you can just put that aside and say, well, you know, let's come back to it later when we've got a better idea of how this is going to cause some sort of positive impact. Because I don't know about you, but I find hope to be a pretty crappy strategy. Uh, it does just doesn't tend to work as often as, as you might, well, hope it does. Um, and so what I like to do is, is actually use some kind of data and evidence. And like, I'm not asking for hard numbers. Like I'm not saying you have to prove every feature's value like 10 years in advance, but if you can't even explain, like, this is going to affect 10 customers, that one's going to affect a hundred customers. Okay. Now we've got some data we can use to weigh these things a little bit against each other. You know, are they super high value customers? Do they, you know, are they, are they going to, you know, bring in and refer other people as a result of it? Like what, what is the actual impact? And very often you see the holes in your thinking and 
I think we have to get better at doing that as a whole. And you don't have to be perfect. You just need to be a little bit better than your competition. And you can outperform what most people are doing by a long, long, long way because you know, most people decide and then use their rational ability to justify the decision afterwards rather than doing it the other way around. And I, I think it's much easier if you if you start by doing that thinking in a, in a sort of forward motion direction, come up with a hypothesis before you start. You mentioned about the uh, autonomy, and I read your article about the the, the, the main uh, learning points of um, working at Spotify. And one of those things was that there is such thing as having too much autonomy. Could you talk to uh, Could you talk us through about that? Sure, uh, I'm just linking it in the chat for those who haven't yet seen it. Um, but basically, the the idea there was that what I experienced, or what I was trying to capture in the way that I wrote it, was that very often people sort of have this, they're, they're used to working in a very corporate controlled, like dictation kind of environment where they don't have a lot of autonomy. And so people think that more autonomy is always better. But I think there's a point where you actually flip and you go the other way. Um, and the challenge is that if everyone is going in a different direction, if you don't also spend some time to align and integrate the ideas, what you end up with is a totally disjointed suite of products or a very complex system that you've got to try to technically integrate in some form. And so it's a little bit of a balance of weighing this thing. You've seen some of these diagrams, people talking about alignment versus autonomy as an example. Um, and I, I think basically what we need to do is invest a little bit on saying like, how much autonomy do you want and how much alignment do you need in order to support that level of autonomy? Because it is very, very expensive, I think, to, to pay the tax of reintegrating, whether it's cultural changes, product changes, or technological systems and architecture down the line um, once you've made choices. It, a very simple way to illustrate this is you've got 35 teams all working in a different tool using a different language and maybe you know a different even deployment infrastructure. That's an absolute nightmare to try to make anything cohesive and consistent across the organization. And at some point, that becomes an issue, but not maybe in every single one of the cases. So for example, if you've got, um, you know, few thousand different types of tools to check in i have to deal with this flood of notifications from 47 different places that's very very difficult for me to make sense of like which actually is the important thing um so yeah i, I think as you grow you have to deal with some of those challenges and say yeah you, you have autonomy to decide what to work on but you don't get to decide which tool you do it in we're standardizing on this tool or we're standing uh, standardizing on the set of languages this type of I don't know, data architecture, these kind of pipeline tools, whatever it is that you're doing, some things benefit from standardization. And you can still leave space for people to say, okay, but if I can make a really strong and clear argument for why in this particular case, you know, uh, take Spotify as an example, we're doing things with audio, but now we start experimenting with something in video. Maybe the tooling and infrastructure needs to be a little bit different for that. And if you can make a case for it, cool. But if you just like, well, I like this new shiny technology that came out yesterday, cool, play with it in a hack week or something or on your own time. But we're not deploying and supporting infrastructure for it because the complexity add is just too complicated and doesn't add overarching value. It's net negative. So that's how I would think about it. Jim, I saw you nodding quite a bit. Tell me your thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to two, two kind of big themes at play here, I think. What is this autonomy? And I, I couldn't agree more that too much autonomy can be a bad thing. And I think the phrase that we've said on this podcast before is, bounded autonomy. Like you you have some guardrails to where you have complete and utter freedom, 
but it doesn't mean you can go off and just do whatever you want. I mean, that, that would not be comfortable for a lot of people. It wouldn't be comfortable or good for a lot of companies or teams, et cetera. But it's thinking about whatever amount of autonomy you have today, is it the right amount? Is it too much or not enough? And if it's not enough, how can you widen it? And normally things like trust and integrity and ethics will help you widen it if you show that you're handling the existing autonomy and you're, you're making more right decisions than wrong decisions in hindsight, et cetera. But the other thing that, Cliff, I think you're talking about is what I would call a, a constraint, like Scrum and Kanban and many of these other things impart constraints. And I'm curious, since you spent time at one of my favorite companies, I've been a long, long time Spotify subscriber. I love the product. It, it's the biggest compliment that I can give it is it just works. Like I could put it in front of my... 85 plus year old grandmother and it just works she can play music she can find music and so mm. many features suffer from bloat but how would you advise a product team to balance necessary constraints to say you can't just use any data model you want you can't go always chase that bleeding edge technology versus the problem of not yeah. ever being open to, is there a better way to do this? Is there a better mousetrap out there? And I think that that is one of the balances between <laughs> using constraints as a way to say, if, you know, if you say, Jim, I, here's a thousand dollars, I need you to design a better polo shirt and you got to have these sizes and it's got, you know, okay, you've given me a number of constraints. You've given me a, a budget and some design constraints. That's good. But if you just say, go design the next generation polo shirt, I don't know, maybe that's going to cost a million dollars. Maybe it's going to take me a year. Maybe I'm going to show some garish, bright neon green thing with six pockets on the back and all this. And you're going to be like, this is stupid. So, but everything feels odd to us until we've seen it and used it. And what are your thoughts on kind of this idea of unconstrained and constrained type of design when it comes to products? Um. I have a couple of different thoughts on that. So I, I think there's a huge amount of value investing energy in defining some kind of useful consistency or beneficial standardization. Um, the challenge I find is that a lot of organizations, they, they approach it through a one size fits all lens. Um, and I, I think it's worth thinking about it in the sense of like, okay, so if we're doing some sort of high end, super cutting edge experimentation, maybe we're a little bit looser on some of the constraints. Whereas if we're doing like, you know, standard, you know, data structure, pipelines, sort of data delivery and storage kind of stuff, there has to be some rules because otherwise it just becomes an absolute dog show. Um, and so finding that balance of like, how much do you want to guide things? I, I think is that's part of the art because if you over constrain it, people say, well, I don't have any autonomy and freedom to make any choices. I feel very restricted by the bureaucracy. Uh, but if you don't do anything, you, you get very few of the benefits of scaling and kind of rolling things out across a broader organization because you have to invent a new protocol, a new tool, a new system every time. Um, and I, I think a large amount of the benefit there is that in those spaces, Spotify has actually been really good. I don't know if you've seen this product called Backstage that they've built and open sourced. Um, it's basically orchestration and a whole bunch of really cool like backend technology management and discovery tooling and so on. Um, and I, I'm super cool or super happy that they've gone the route of open sourcing it in addition to all the effort they've built on it. But if you build something like this, the point is basically what it enables you to do is actually define some standards. Because I think very often in the org, 
understanding that there is a defined standard and discovering what that is, is a bit of a minefield in and of itself. Because, you know, one team is documented in one place, some team has done it in the code, somebody else has it in their head, someone's got it on a wiki page somewhere. Uh, and so trying to create some kind of a space where you can say, you know, these are the rules and protocols that we've defined. This is how you can request variation and variety and so on. Um, so that's the one thing. The other piece of it, I think, is if you talk more generally about constraints, I, I like this metaphor of tripwires um, that I've started using uh, over the last couple of years. The idea is basically you don't want to be kind of in a constant state of like, have we gone too far or are we pushing hard enough kind of thing? And so you can set a boundary that says like, this is a safe kind of limit of, I don't know, ship to 1% of users or spend up to $200,000 or something like that. It's like, if you haven't hit that line, feel free to keep going. Um, and so you can, you can give people some freedom to be able to say, okay, when we trigger that line, now we need to have a conversation and say, well, what should we do next? Do we want to, you know, invest further? Do we want to roll it out to larger group of users or do we need to take some kind of different path? Um, and I think very often just having a bit of a conversation, even a light, you know, 20 minute, 30 minute conversation about it. What are the boundaries? Which of these boundaries are also very hard and fixed and which ones you know if you if we say two hundred thousand is the limit if you spend 220 that's probably fine you know over under by 10 percent is cool but if you go to more than that that's a hard stop and you know it's enforced by a system rule or something like this um i think there's a lot of cool stuff that can be done in that space but very often people as i said at the beginning they take a one-size-fits-all approach and you know Guys who are buying millions of dollars of infrastructure are trying to go through the same procurement process as people who buy pencils. And it's like, this is just absurd. Um, you have to, you know, take the context into account. And um, yeah. You mentioned money, and that's something else I've been spending a lot of time talking and thinking about for a couple clients is um, how do you, if somebody were to ask you, how can we fund work differently is that an area you've spent any time on and would you have any thoughts or advice to, to people around that like what does it mean to fund work in an agile way or how do we fund product design or agility type things differently than other stuff i, I like this conversation about how do we fund stuff because i think if we're taking more like a sort of investment portfolio, you know, we, we've got X amount per quarter or X amount per year, and we, we get to decide how to allocate it between different things. It, it forces us to confront the trade-off between those decisions. Um, and I, I think very often what I found happening is that, like, especially with like junior managers, I had to have this conversation of like, you know that your budget for that thing, it, it's not its not a like rainy day fund. The intent is you should spend it on those things. It's actually an investment allocation. And so if you've got 5K a month in order to go travel and get your team physically together to talk about stuff, please go and do that. Like it's not, you, you shouldn't feel like, oh, I have to come and ask permission a thousand times or figure out some complicated thing. So that, that's like on one end of the spectrum. And I, I think the other piece is having it in a way where like you've got sort of like these tripwires and the tripwires can also be time bound. So we will spend a quarter or we think it makes sense to spend a quarter on this before we evaluate it and go, okay, what is inside here? And then we might say after the second round, if we want to invest a, a second quarter in this, 
we will do a much stricter check on does it make sense but we'll fund anything for a couple of weeks fund anything you know sort of a little bit more strict for a few months um and then relatively strict for a month but if you want to do something for several months uh, or even several years you're going to have to have a strong case for it but prove it out sort of one smaller step at a time um and i think that this is this is quite helpful sunder what do you think like uh, have you done any thinking or work around funding or budgeting models for things like this? This is pretty much what Cliff just mentioned is pretty much what we've been talking about in our recurring uh, conference talk times where it's it's really easy, not even deliberately, if, if teams are being funded for an entire year to just sit back and think there's always going to be a next sprint and not necessarily think about what is really the outcome that we're trying to achieve here. Um, because there's no necessarily a, not, not a, a burning platform for people to change. They can just sit back be, without repercussions. And I'm not saying that you have to put people's jobs in the line, but people also need to be aware of this is a, where we're spending someone else's money here. And this is a corporate company. This is not some uh, occupational therapy that we can just chug in and, and we, we punch in and we, we leave at five. No, we, we're really de- developing a product here that is supposed to deliver value. So what's the value that we're trying to achieve? What's the outcome that we're trying to get out of this? And how can we get there? And if we do that, if we create the impact that we need to, that we really want to, then we can work on this awesome product for another three months and so on. And the other way around as well, if we have satisfied the customer before the end of the year, before our budget runs out, that we can pull the plug and we save the client a lot of money or our own company a lot of money. And and there's no one that's going to say, well, no, we we budgeted you anyway. Just spend my money how you do, however you deem fit. Go to a bar and then go on a binge. No, of course they're going to be happy that you save them a boatload of money. What I was going to add is that I, I think often what we we struggle with with these allocation events is that we we do them the the, the one ends and the next one starts at the same point in time, uh, and so we have like a yearly or quarterly cycle that you know the boundaries are right next to each other. What I like is to actually have sort of multi-level boundaries, if you will. So if you're forecasting your budget or your roadmap or something like this, um, headcount, I would do the same. Basically, do it for a one-year forward-looking view, uh, but update it every three months. So basically, what you're doing is a small amount of revision every quarter. Uh, You you could adjust this, you know, for timescales that make more sense in a longer-term industry, for example. But, you know, The current quarter, we need to know quite specifically, this is committed. We're doing this stuff because we will hire those people. We'll build those things. We will spend that money now. But next quarter, that might review or change or massage a little bit into a different shape. But we also want to have a slightly longer term view to be able to see, well, where are we going in the future? And I think if you're doing this kind of thing, it does two things. It it gets you sort of into the habit of revising and reviewing things on a more frequent basis. But it also means that when you reach the, the boundary of planning for next year, it's not as hard and difficult a boundary because it's now we're trying to wrap up last year and finish a plan for next year all at the same time while we don't yet have data. Whereas if we're doing more of a rolling kind of window, uh, we get a much more sensible thing. And because we've passed over it multiple times, we can say, hey, that's only in Q4 next year. So we don't have to have it like locked down to the letter. We can have a broad shape of it and we can add some more color as we get closer to it. Um, I think this kind of approach makes a lot of sense for many, many things. And I mean, I use this in my personal life. Uh, I've used it in multiple companies and as you know, a business manager as well. And I, I think this is a great way to do things. And um, 
Yeah, that's why it's so important that product owners or product managers are actually empowered to make these kind of decisions and they know where to get the, the, the budget from and, and to influence the right people. But if it's always done by the same steering committee or the finance manager or sales or whatever, then you really get lost in translation and then you, don't, you don't have the right process set up. Well, to connect this with something Cliff said earlier is treating things the same when they're not like... I think one of the most impactful things you said that I just want to highlight for the audience is these are investments. I mean, many of us have been told and trained and, and raised to say, you know, if I give you 10 euros as your allowance, if you, you should save some of that. You should sock that away for a rainy day fund. So if we think about a budget line item that's for Azure spend or AWS spend or, or licenses, yes, in that case, spending less than you're allocated while still achieving the same outcomes could be exactly what a leader should do. But if we're looking at an investment, a capital investment maybe, in building something new, the opposite might be the case. If we give you a million euro for the year, and at the end of Q1, you haven't spent 250,000 of it, I would say, are we not doing anything? Why are you not spending that? Are we, you know, and if, some, if it's just because something is cheaper than we predicted, maybe that's fine. But I think all too often what I am seeing more and more of is chronic underspend in organizations. And then that leads to either punitive measures or corporate waste towards the end of the year. And then I have other groups and companies and clients that are, you know, uh, one of my clients a couple of years ago, they had blown their yearly travel budget by April. And they're like, yeah, we'd love to fly over here, but we can't because we blew the yearly budget by April. So. I think it's treating that money differently based on what its intent is to be used for. And I would love, like, I like this idea of tripwires because the way to use a tripwire in this case might be that million and 250,000 example is, hey, on, uh, on April 1st, what have you actually spent? And if you're plus or minus 15, 20%, okay, maybe that's good. You're, you're, you're using that. But if it's zero or if you haven't even cut the first check, to on that product or investment that we've made, why? And we might not release that next tranche of investment if, you know, it's just going to go sit in your, your proverbial desk drawer and not get used. I think what you said about kind of allocating it maybe in smaller chunks, so that situation where you've burned the travel budget for the entire year in April, to me, that, that speaks to an issue of, of really some kind of better financial management and saying, okay, what we're going to do is allocate maybe a half yearly or a quarterly budget instead so that we know we've got some left for, you know, the later part of the year. Um, and I, I think it's the sort of thing of like, you know, I, I was trying to think of a good example to kind of illustrate the point. But like, if you think about your kids, like if, if you're giving them pocket money of some kind and they're maxing it all out, you don't give it to them once at the beginning of the year because you're pretty sure that's what's going to happen. Whereas what you do is you say, well, I'll give you something every Sunday and then you've, you've got something for the week and they learn a little bit of like, okay, I have to actually save and build up if I want to be able to spend, you know, all of it on something bigger. Um, and I think there's a lot of teaching people how to do this stuff a little bit more reasonably because it is easy when you see that big number to just kind of YOLO your way through it. And then next thing you know, actually, <laughs> we've got some problems. We can't deliver on our commitments. And yeah, that's, that's very, very tricky. I fully agree with that. What it's it's a different culture, right, than compared to most traditional organizations. And I guess um, that ties into that's a good segue to number four in your list of uh, uh, reflections on Spotify. Culture change are both profound and challenging. 
Tell us about that. Yeah, so the context there was that the vast majority of the teams that I was working with, whether it's a leadership team or a broader organization, involve people from almost every continent. Uh, and what's fascinating about that is that you end up with sort of having to confront the fact that my set of defaults and expectations about what's normal, expected, and always like has to be done is going to be different from yours. And the advantage is that when you're in a space where there's a high level of variation, you, you have to confront it. But I think what the hidden benefit of it is, is that even between a group of people who are Swedish or all, all Dutch or all American, they will have differences. And we have these assumptions based on, you know, I grew up with this way. And so, you know, we just talk about like, if I don't like something, I tell you, uh, that's the South African norm. But for some people, that's going to be highly offensive. You need to wait for the appropriate time. Uh, and you have to kind of say it in a more subtle way or whatever. And we need to talk about those things and figure it out. And so I think what it really taught me was a huge amount of how important it is to invest in those kind of team formation like i heard it framed uh, earlier today as like your personal allergies in a way like i'm going to be set on fire by you doing this and this set of things and you get a chance to say your set of things and then we can also talk about like you know what are the things that i need in order for my you know environment to be super productive i need a high level of feedback i want you to be explicit about if you agree or disagree with me um you know those kind of things let's talk it through and actually be explicit and say yeah, I can agree to this or not agree to that. And I don't expect that everybody's going to be 100% on board with everything. There's going to be points where we say, you know, I mean, I had one teammate who said, like, I really hate it when people eat food in the team area. Like, it just, it really grosses me out. And folks were like, yeah, cool. But like, we had to waive that when the cafeteria was being renovated. And that person was like, okay, fine, I get it. For this period of time, like, we'll work around it. But like, I think these kind of things, if you don't talk about it, you end up with a lot of defaults and assumptions and it creates so many challenges. And yeah. It's a tricky thing to navigate, right? Yeah. Now we're slowly getting to the end of the episode. There are two more questions, at least from my side. Uh, one of them comes from the audience, from Yannick, uh, tying back to the previous uh, subject of budgeting. So how would you handle things like government deadlines, something the budget can grow almost equal to the punishment they would otherwise get from the government or EU. They have a lot of changes within the energy sector at the moment, for instance. I mean, I, I think the, the interesting thing about these large-scale projects is that people still try to plan them all in advance. And that's not to say that you shouldn't have a plan before you start, because you know if you're building a power plant, you want to have some idea, like you need to go all the way to the end and say, this is, you know, everything we can think of right now is going to cost about this much. Um, but I think that the challenge is that if you're not constantly adapting and saying, hang on, you know, we're six months into an 18-month project, we're already like 200% over budget. We think that we're going to end up probably three or 400% over budget. What should we do? You know, do we have something that we can cut in order to do that? Is there some way we can get more funding? Do we shut it down and rather save the other, you know, 300% of the money and do something more meaningful with it? What are the options there? And I think having those kind of like the tripwire is basically a point to say, let's have a look after a period of time and see how we're doing. Just because we've got a deadline that is n number of years away doesn't mean we should wait until then to find out if things are on track. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that can be de-risked in, in those sort of situations if people take the time. Um, I'll be honest, I haven't worked with a lot of enormous government-funded stuff. I mean, I've worked on a few projects like some of the GDPR compliance things, um, you know, where there's a very strict deadline and there's a fine if you don't get it. 
And I, I think part of the challenge in that situation is that you have to be clear on which of the which are the aspects of that project or initiative that are going to bring the biggest impact. Because you know there might be ten percent of it that you, know, you get fined a million euros, but if you don't do the other ninety, you're going to get fined a hundred million. Okay, cool. Well, we can deliver the ninety, and we just you know we'll take a take a hit on the other bit. Or what we'll do is we'll go back to the government and say, look, we've really tried. Look how much we've done. We've done ninety percent. Give us a little bit of extra time to do the last ten. Um, and I, I think if the, if you're trying to do it in that sort of a way, you can mitigate. It, you know, it's, these things are usually not all or nothing. There's there's a little bit of wiggle room um, or a little bit of a slider, and you can you can try to find the bits that are having the biggest impact. I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, Yannick. Um, I, I think the, the sort of context is difficult to know a hell of a lot about, but I think I wouldn't want to find out on the day or just before the day uh, if something is going to meet the deadline. I'd like to have sort of a smell from quite far in advance, ideally. It's interesting to see that we run over these decisions quite fast. Sorry, Jim, go ahead. No, no, sorry. Um, one of the things, just to, to try and be really brief on this, is to investigate what are sometimes called urgency profiles or a uh, class of service. Like These regulatory things, I've been subject to these at a number of different clients, and I'll never forget this one a very contentious meeting we were in like six, seven years ago, and someone was literally smashing their hand on the table multiple times with a big room of people saying, we have to have this by this date. We have to, or we are going to be fined by the government. And uh, I just kind of took it all in. I was a little taken aback, as were a number of other people. And I asked, I found my voice and I said, what happens if we don't? On that date, if we haven't done this project, what happens? Well, we get fined. No, no. Like what actually happens? Who gets fined? What happens? And we talked through that for a while. And I said, okay, what actually needs to happen to make us not get fined? Because they were requesting a 2,500 uh, person hour project, which at that company's blended rate, I just did the math on my phone, was around $300,000 uh, US. And it came out that the actual thing to prevent a regulatory fine was like nine lines of code. Now, now I'm not dim- dismissing the amount of work that it takes to do nine lines of code I'm, because I'm smart enough to know that, you know, the time and the risk is not just banging on the keyboard for nine lines. But what we then got into was, is it really that date? What, why is that date? Because it wasn't like Jan 1. And the person said, well, it's not really that date. It's like three months later. And I'm like, oh, and a lot of people in the room perked up. And I said, why was why was that the date given? Well, this group has chronically let us down. So we have been building in some <laughs> slack and buffer to our request to account for them chronically letting us down. And I said, okay. So then some chests got puffed up at the table and some people started feeling very full of themselves. And I said, is that true? Have you been letting them down? And then they had to sheepishly say, yeah, you know, we are chronically months late on things. And anyway, long story short is the, so Cliff, I saw your question. The fine, if I remember right, this is so many years ago, but it was at least the number that stuck out in my head was a million dollars a month until the problem was remediated. But 
the punchline of this whole story is what we found out is 2,500 person hours are being requested. Two people in Delaware got the problem fixed in 32 hours of focused activity, but a whole bunch of things were added as what we call pork here in the U.S. to that budget, right? So they're trying to jam in all these other features and fluff and stuff that somebody else wanted to this to get it through. And then because things get bigger, they get more attention, they, they, they get a bigger audience. It also can sometimes be seen as a benefit to make something bigger or scarier than it actually is. But both sides of the table left that day with a realization that if they had just been open and honest, we would have had a much more realistic conversation around actual deadlines and what work is actually needed instead of making it seem like we need hundreds and hundreds of pieces of work done with this massive date of uh, in risk. And in the end, it was a not it was a non issue. So again, I don't know if that story repeats itself, but I know from my time in the energy sector that if you wanted to be sure that your thing was going to get attention and a higher likelihood of being approved, just add the word regulatory to it. Like, oh, this is a regulated thing or this is a requirement. Well, (laughs) I have found so many of those over the years that are not true. Yeah, I, I, I found That's a number sad, of these situations where the, the plan was that, like, we have to do something because of regulatory requirements. But the thing is, like, you know, the, the fine for doing this is like 200,000. The cost of doing it is a million. And quite simply, you can ask the question, well, like, does it still make sense to do it? Surely we just pay the fine and save 800,000 and do something else with the time. Uh, and quite often the case is, yeah, it, it does make sense to do that. So I, I think on both ends of the spectrum, there's there's a lot of opportunity for a better conversation, as you say. Hey, listen, I want to be respectful uh, respectful of your time as well. Um, my last question, um, with the current conditions in the economy, there are quite some layoffs going on. And I see a lot of people try to, to jump like the popular organizations like Spotify. What would be the best way to get hired in your experience? Um, so I, I kind of wrote this in, in my article and I said the best way to get hired is to be lucky. Um, and the, the, there's a couple of things that I think you can do in order to increase the likelihood that you're lucky. Um, I myself applied twice to the company before I got hired. I know many people who tried multiple times uh, and I think this is true in many cases. You know, the, the quantity of CVs that most companies are receiving is enormously high. You might just get bounced because some random thing happened and it's not indicative of you not being qualified for the job. Um, The things that I think that can help in this case is to look clearly at what the job description is and try to find either somebody within the organization who can give you a referral or possible like kind of introduction to somebody in the organization. Uh, You'd be amazed how often just meeting somebody even via LinkedIn or go to a meetup or, you know, you know, somebody who knows a person kind of thing. These kind of things go an enormously long way. Um, And I think the other thing that people can do is talk more publicly about the stuff that they've done and they're doing. Um, You don't want to be the world's best kept secret. Uh, And I think very often people end up being like that because they're just sort of silently and I, I give this advice to a lot of new managers part of the job is doing something impactful the other is telling people about the impactful thing that you did and people shy away from this because oh self-promotion blah, blah blah it's like yeah but if nobody knows what you did 
how are they supposed to recognize you for it or give you a promotion or hire you for it? And so, you know, anything from a public profile to a blog to a book you wrote to some designs you created, whatever it is, put that stuff out there so that people can see what you're doing. Go to a conference, go to a meetup, talk about it. This kind of stuff is a great way to meet people uh, and really kind of hone your craft and put yourself a bit more out there and increase the surface area that you have for these lucky events to land on. Jim really um, summed it up nicely. Luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. And it's kind of, that's, that's pretty much what you're describing here as well. The preparedness in, in speaking up and in going to meet people and finding the right opportunity. So I really love that. I can imagine that a lot of people would want to work with Spotify uh, being in the, in the picture that they are. So this would be massively uh, useful advice, I can imagine. Jim, you got any last questions? Uh, no last questions uh, like the topic. And I would just say that I am hearing from hiring managers that even, you know, successful but not Spotify or Google type companies that they're getting a thousand plus resumes for a public job posting on, on the big boards. It, it is very hard to stand out in that. But it, so I would just want to echo Cliff's uh, advice that you got to put yourself in a situation to be lucky. And the days of applying to things blindly, putting yourself in a stack and standing out are, if you're going to go after big game, like, like Spotify or Starbucks or some big auto employer that you want to work for because you're passionate about, you got to explain what do you bring to the table? Why are you interested in them? It's, it's much more, I think now a laser focus game. And it is also about networking and, and all that. And that might feel like political maneuvering to some people, but it's not. Networking is just meeting people. It's it, it doesn't have to be gross. It doesn't have to be and shouldn't be, you know, disingenuine. It, it should be very genuine and personal for everybody involved. Totally agree with that. Amen. Cliff, uh, we've re referred to your articles quite a bit in this uh, this episode. Where can people find your articles? Yeah, so the, the best place to find me is actually on LinkedIn. Uh, otherwise, you can also go to my website, which is cliffhazel.com. So my first name and surname.com. Uh, just note that there's two L's in Hazel. Uh, but if you Google it with one L, you will still find me. Um, but yeah, uh, love to chat to folks on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm pretty active on there. I share sort of my earlier thoughts and experimentation and ideas. And then uh, stuff that I'm feeling more kind of concrete about uh, tends to be on my website, and my blog and uh, there's a bunch of links to find out about the stuff that I've done and what I'm up to. And yeah, I'd love to chat to people. And we love to chat to you today. We really loved your insights about hey, Spotify, obviously, but also your opinions and your insights on the, the way product is heading and where we're, we're heading towards in product development. So thank you very much for making the time for being here. Thanks so much for having thank me. Thank you very much, Cliff. We'll talk soon. Bye, gents. for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.